Deep dive into the world of science with Nature Plus. From the vastness of the distant star systems to the intricacies of infectious diseases due to climate change, we've got you covered. Enjoy access to over 55 cutting-edge journals, breaking scientific news, and over a 1,000 new articles every month. Whether you're a seasoned researcher or just curious, Nature Plus simplifies complex studies. Plus, it's all available right at your fingertips on nature.com. Nature Plus, the key to unlocking the world's most significant scientific advances. Subscribe today at go.nature.com slash plus. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello and welcome back to our roundtable discussion show, Backchat, where we look at the stories behind the stories here at Nature. On this edition of the show, we'll be talking climate change, discussing a worldwide joint publishing project, the importance of language, and how we can use images to tell a story. I'm Benjamin Thompson, and joining me in the studio are Helen Pearson. Hi, I'm Helen Pearson. I'm Chief Magazine Editor for Nature. Lizzie Brown. Hi, I'm Lizzie Brown. I'm the Managing Media Editor for Nature. And Essan Masood. Hi, I'm Essan Masood, and I look after editorials, Africa and the Middle East. Coming up in the show, we'll be chatting about the evolving use of words used when reporting climate stories. How might language affect people's views on the subject? Firstly, though, this week Nature is taking part in a project called Covering Climate Now. Helen, as Nature's chief magazine editor, you've been leading on Nature's involvement. What can you tell me about Covering Climate Now and what it hopes to achieve? Yeah, so Covering Climate Now is a really interesting project, which is a group of many media outlets from around the world all collaborating together and committing to have one week of intensive coverage of climate change in the week leading up to the UN Climate Summit in New York on September the 23rd. If that's what the project is, how did nature get involved in the first instance? Our involvement really started back in early June when I got an email from an environmental journalist called Mark Hertzgaard, um, who's written for a long time about climate change, telling us about the, the project. I thought it was intriguing. I took it to the Nature team and said, do we want to be part of this effort? And there was really universal enthusiasm from the editors to to be part of this When we signed up, which I think was in August, there were about 60 media outlets around the world taking part. Now there are over 220 with a combined audience of over 1 billion in total. So it's just a very unusual and ambitious effort to raise the volume of news and the quality as well around climate change. Hmm. I mean, an ambitious project, no doubt. I mean, is this something that, that nature has done before? Not in my memory, no. Uh, We've obviously collaborated with one or two media outlets perhaps in the past and we've collaborated with our sister magazine Scientific American, so smaller projects, but nothing on this scale that I recall anyway. Well, lots of media organisations taking part in covering climate now, and over over 220, as you say, at time of recording. Um, 
who are they and, and what's the benefit of us all working together? Right, there's a really impressive array of, of media outlets taking part. So we've got major newspapers, most of the biggest public radio stations in the US, online outlets, HuffPost, BuzzFeed, Vanity Fair, and, and also all around the world. So countries from Turkey to India are taking part. So as I said, quite unusual to have that array of, of organisations. So I think it adds just this kind of energy to the debate, which is anyway happening, I think, and I'm sure the others here would, would agree with me. So, for example, the, the youth movement that's taking place around climate at the moment has also injected this kind of new energy into, into the debate and perhaps an urgency. And interestingly, covering climate now is happening exactly the same time as a series of worldwide climate strikes, which is being led by that youth movement. So there's, there's a lot happening this, this week. And, um, you know, collectively, I think we can make more of a difference than we can on our own. Well, certainly an impressive list there, but it's not an exhaustive list, I would say. There are a lot of sort of national broadcasters, but there's not every national broadcaster. And, uh, and clearly we're trying to sort of tip the balance of the signal-to-noise ratio in favour of as many people seeing this as possible. Does that lack of having everybody involved potentially weaken the message? Are we, are we preaching to the choir, maybe? Are we missing out on a, on a group of people that, that maybe need to be exposed to the message? I don't know that the point of this effort or the goal or ambition is necessarily that we are going to convert people who have a, a, a strong disbelief, should we say, of, of climate science. Nature probably is not read by those people, and I don't think us producing more climate stories in this particular week is going to make any difference to that. I do think that with so many outlets taking part at the same time, that gives you a, a volume and a level around this conversation about this incredibly important issue, which just wouldn't happen otherwise. I would say I suspect they they probably do read nature, you know, and for many reasons, you know, they they I suspect they would read it uh, just to to know what the uh, the consensus of the community would be, uh, even if they don't necessarily themselves believe in uh, what that consensus might be. But it's a little bit like, if I can phrase it this way, knowing your enemy almost, or what they might, what some might regard as being the enemy. I think that's an issue, and I think it will be really interesting to see when we get closer to the time whether there are some quote-unquote converts because the, the the scale of of activity particularly helen as you were saying in response to the, the to the young people to the youth movements is is really affecting and it's going in places that you know we wouldn't perhaps normally expect uh, so i think we might be in for some surprises i'm i'm hoping we might be in for some surprises What's interesting is just the fact that so many media are coming together is news in itself. So some outlets like The Guardian have already published and we will be publishing um, an explanation of why we're, we're taking part. And so I hope that might also attract attention. I do think it's really important for a journal you know, and a, and a magazine, which is what nature is, to take part in something like this. We, we're not just passive conduits for the science. We do publish, obviously, really important research, which has influenced the debate about climate change. But we also really care about how that science is used in society. Um, otherwise, why are we here? Um, and I think that us being part of that really, really shows that. We don't necessarily have all the answers, um, but we do stand by the science and want the world to act on the science. Let's move on to our second topic for this edition of Backchat, and we'll be talking about words and messaging when it comes to reporting on climate stories. This has been something of an ongoing topic. Earlier this year, The Guardian, national newspaper here in the UK, changed the wording they use and now, for example, use climate emergency rather than climate change in their articles and go for global heating rather than global warming. Essan, language is evolving all the time. What sort of experience do you have of being part of discussions like these? 
Well, I mean, I, I take myself back to my reporting days in the early to mid-1990s. Um, I used to work here in the news teams. Uh, we had to be quite careful because we were writing for principally the community of scientists. And so up until the sort of mid to late 90s, there was still debate about the human fingerprint on climate change, on global warming. And so as reporters, we had to preface our description by saying anthropogenic if we had a news story, particularly we were writing about climate change, we would have to say anthropogenic because within the community, there was a debate. There was still a debate. Now, that debate has ended and I moved on and, and wasn't working here. And I, obviously, that doesn't happen anymore. So, so you know, the, the, the language evolves as the information changes. And that applies to those of us who are communicating and as much as it applies to those who are practitioners. I mean, do, do you think that, uh, that having to use a particular phrase focuses a reporter's mind as much as maybe it does a, a reader who's reading it later on? Accuracy is the sort of critical thing here. And context also matters. So for example, if you take a phrase like climate emergency, then in terms of doing things, I think it is right to use, you know, phrases like climate now and climate emergency. But if we're describing a particular natural phenomenon, if we're describing some new finding in temperature increase, or if we're, if we're describing some new aspects of um, climate models, for example, then we wouldn't necessarily need to use a phrase like climate emergency. So I think context is really important in language. Mm. I mean, but with that context, do you think we risk losing objectivity? I mean, when do we stray into activism by using this word emergency or crisis? Do you then change your editorial line and maybe lose the neutrality and, and does that risk alienating people as well, do you think? No, I, I wouldn't say so. I mean, I think the consensus of all the disciplinary communities now is that we are entering a situation which could be called a crisis. It's interesting that Nature back in 1979 published um, a two-page commentary from uh, Michael Glantz, then of Boulder, Colorado, and he was summing up the state of knowledge then, which was that we could get one to four degrees warming by the middle of the 21st century, you know, not a million miles off from what we know now. And he was saying then that, you know, as a member of the research community, that this potentially could become a crisis if we don't do something about it. So even, you know, many decades ago, in the early part of this, uh, of, of this story, uh, that, that, that word was being used within the pages of nature by uh, members of nature's communities. And, and that is maybe then, in that case, a research term. And we know that a lot of our readers and viewers and listeners are researchers. Where do you all think the balance lies between using wording that researchers use and, and think is correct and maybe words that non-researchers use and, and, and are used to? I think that it depends, as Essam was saying, in, in which context we're writing. I mean, we publish original research and obviously that will be the scientific norms, the scientific language that those researchers want to write. When we're writing um, news pieces or editorials or, or commentaries, which are aimed to be understandable by um, all disciplines, by the scientific community and, and beyond by science stakeholders, then we try and use the, the simplest language that, that we can and language which will be understood and make its point. I mean, I think at the moment, our, our take across all of those is that we would rather stick with the scientific norms, which are generally using the terms around climate change. I mean, it, it would be interesting to know actually what evidence there is that changing the language to something like an emergency 
um, is likely to lead to more action, right? That's the question. If you think about, for example, the Ebola crisis in Africa, where it's a very, very big deal when the WHO decided to say that was a public health emergency. Um, but that's because associated with that change of terminology, there also comes a particular action plan and funding and so forth. But we can't necessarily say that, right, around changing the language around climate change. Although obviously, if it starts to sort of just bleed into everyone's understanding that this is no longer just a sort of passive change, it, it, it's an emergency. But how much does that make a difference to the debate, the global debate, and the discussions which are going on in the UN? I, I don't think we actually have the evidence to, to know that. If we can bring it back to style and phrasing, an organisation's style guide is, is kind of the, the, the Bible, if you will, for, for the words and phrases that they, they use. I mean, how does nature make decisions on its style and, and what would have to be done if, if it was to be changed? So nature has a style guide, uh, which, as you said, is a kind of Bible of how we refer to, to things, you know, through all of our different types of, of content. And that is constantly being updated as language evolves, just as we have, have discussed. Um, and sometimes we have arguments about it, <laughs> about, uh, you know, a sense that, that language has moved on or our style guide hasn't moved on. And also it's very difficult when you're an international publication because what's the norm in language in one country might not be in others. And ours tends to be quite British because th those are our origins. So, you know, I, when we were talking about something like climate change or climate emergency, which I think is making quite a statement, I mean, I think we would have quite a serious conversation among senior editors about whether that was a change that we were willing to make. If it's smaller changes, then I think those would be updated and sometimes we'll have a, a focus on an, an entirely sort of specific area uh, where we just feel like we need to refresh our language. So it's an ongoing process. We talk about changes then, and I think maybe the, at the moment The Guardian is relatively alone in using climate emergencies. Certainly not every outlet has, has shifted into doing that. When the world does change, though, and things become the norm, do, do we change with it? I mean, will we be looking at our, our word usage? Do we, do we lead? Do we follow? There, there seems to be such a push at the moment. What, what do you think it would take for, for any alterations to occur? I think it would come ultimately from the scientific community, which really is such an important part of our voice and, and what we publish. And so, for example, if a scientist wants to publish with us at the moment, and, and we've actually got pieces coming out in, in Climate Week, where people with roots in the scientific community or scientists themselves are deciding to use, for example, climate crisis or climate catastrophe in what they want to publish with us, we're not going to change that. That's their words. But if we were to have a more formal change, you know, across, across the, the board, I think that would be more of a discussion which we would have to decide. But ultimately, we very much do reflect the terminology and want to reflect what scientists feel is appropriate. So I think it would probably be something which was working hand in hand with the conversation that's happening within science. It would be quite interesting, for example, if, say, the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the, the, the main body of scientists who uh, investigate and, uh, and, and and, and make predictions around climate change. They've been going 30 years now. I think it'd be interesting to, to see whether the discussion that we're having is also being replicated in their meetings. And similarly, predating them is the World Climate Research Programme that was started in 1980. And that's still going um, as well. So uh, partly, as Helen says, that if we start to see change in those organisations, which are the the, the main bodies that represent the researchers who work in climate change, then you know we're, we're obviously going to have to start to, to see, just to see where they, where that where that leads us. 
For our final topic today, let's move away from words and talk about the images that are used when reporting on climate stories. Uh, In many cases, I think the shortcut, maybe the stereotype, if you will, is to use pictures of a sad-looking polar bear or people enjoying the sun at the beach when we're talking about the planet warming. Is it time to move away from these, do we think, or, or do they still have value? And Maybe before we get into that, though, Lizzie, you're the managing media editor here. How does nature go about selecting the images that go with stories in the first place, and why do we use them at all? Well, we choose images that are obviously scientifically accurate to go with our scientifically accurate articles. And we try and choose pictures that are emotionally impactful to ensure that our articles uh, make a connection with our readers, which photographs do better than graphics and diagrams. Well, I've been doing a bit of sort of back of the envelope research on this and looking up sort of pictures related to climate change. And it seems that because some of the actual mechanisms are really, really subtle, it's hard to have a picture of carbon dioxide. It's invisible. You have to show, you know, chimneys or pictures from space. We see a lot of those. But that seems quite abstracted to me and maybe misses the impacts on humanity. But however, if you just, you know, show pictures of of people, maybe you miss the global aspects of the problem. I mean, where where do we think that the line is for these? And what what are you looking for when you're looking for 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 a sort of a, a powerful climate related image? Well, I think to make that emotional connection, showing the impacts on people is really important, especially in countries where they don't have the resources to battle climate change that other countries do. Like countries that don't contribute much to the carbon footprint tend to be the ones that are impacted most by it. So using pictures of people from those communities can help readers see the impact of climate change around the world. You know, one thing that I uh, think has changed in terms of images, just the way, uh, Lizzie, that you and your team when, you're, when you work, is that we now have so many more readers in places that we didn't have in previous times and many more readers in countries, as you were saying, who are more affected by climate change. And so in a way, reflecting those readers and their images and their daily existence and the threats and the risks and the challenges and the joys and the highs and the lows is in a sense one of the really positive ways in which image journalism has has changed from, and I don't want to downplay the polar bears and the pandas because that too has its place. You know, having a bigger, broader global readership has has given us those opportunities. Lizzie, how much discussion would there be around what type of climate image we would show, let's say, as a lead image on one of our big stories? If it's a very general story about climate change, we'll, we'll cast a very wide net and get in as many photos as possible. Between us and the editors, we'll choose which picture has the most relevance to the story and has the most impact on readers. We try to avoid really cliched images, the sort of images that we've all seen a million times, and try to show people the more unusual angles and unexpected effects of climate change. Well, Nature has a lot of content coming out this week that's climate-related, and there will be dozens, hundreds of images, I'm sure. Uh, Which one maybe has stood out to you the most as as being sort of very powerful or, or very moving? So there's a series of photos in Bangladesh which shows the coastal erosion that's happening there. And there's a picture of a husband and a wife, I believe, and they are literally moving their front door away from the coast. So the the sea or the river has come up to the edge of the property and they've dismantled all the walls and that's the effect. The most impoverished people in the world are having to literally up sticks and move their home because of climate change. Yeah, certainly sounds like a, a powerful image. Opening it out a bit wider, though, what are we hoping that images like this will provide for our readers? 
as editors, I just think it's really amazing when you're behind the scenes because often we start with the words and, I, and for example, I'll see the, the article come through just as words and it will be refined in the editing process and turned into something beautiful. But the day it lands back on your desk with the layout with the images attached is when it actually becomes an article which is going to make an impact. It's just transformative. It just allows the words to really speak. So, I mean, the image and words together are actually what makes an article, in, in, in my opinion. I think an image that everyone remembers is the image of the seahorse holding the cotton bud. That was shared widely on social media and it really began a discussion about single-use plastics. That was taken in 2017. And since then, certainly in the UK, we've seen companies and businesses completely change their attitude to single-use plastics. So that's an example of a single image creating a conversation and having an actual impact on policy. Well, there we have it for another edition of Backchat. And all that remains is for me to thank my guests, Helen Pearson, Lizzie Brown and Essan Masood for joining me today. You can find everything that Nature is publishing as part of Covering Climate Now over at nature.com. This has been Backchat. I've been Benjamin Thompson. Thanks for listening. Deep dive into the world of science with Nature Plus. From the vastness of the distant star systems to the intricacies of infectious diseases due to climate change, we've got you covered. Enjoy access to over 55 cutting-edge journals, breaking scientific news, and over a 1,000 new articles every month. Whether you're a seasoned researcher or just curious, Nature Plus simplifies complex studies. Plus, it's all available right at your fingertips on nature.com. Nature Plus, the key to unlocking the world's most significant scientific advances. Subscribe today at go.nature.com plus. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.